You are totally going to love today's episode because we talk about dreaming with a Harvard researcher. And you're going to hear when you listen through the whole way, both about nightmares and some of the things that can cause those, some of the substances that can cause you to have different types of dreams, and some of the techniques that can go to work for you so that you can remember what's going on in those altered states and maybe get more out of your sleep. I certainly had a fun time telling some of my stories and hearing even about things like dream art. This is a fascinating episode and unlike any other you've ever heard. So listen through all the way to the end and you're going to hear a whole bunch of stuff you can use. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that a traditional Amazonian drug called ayahuasca is linked with an improved sense of well-being. Some new research at the University College of London found some support to the notion that ayahuasca could be an important and powerful tool in treating depression and alcohol use disorders. Ayahuasca is a blend of one kind of bush and stems from a kind of vine that works synergistically to turn on some stuff in your brain that's usually not turned on. I first did it more than 20 years ago in Peru with an Amazonian shaman, and it's used today as a, a way of, of sometimes accessing altered states and sometimes allowing people to go into uh, to dealing with old trauma and things like that, and it's used in, in shamanic ceremonies and, and things. It's become pretty popular in Silicon Valley, but this is one of the earlier studies that show that it's actually having an effect on people's brains around these big, hard to treat things like depression and alcohol use. I would just caution you that if you're going to do it, uh, don't use it recreationally and use it with someone who really knows what they're doing. You might even consider going and seeing a traditional healer who's studied how to do this because it's ridiculously easy to order it on the dark web, get it and get into trouble because you don't know what you're doing. On that note, before we get into today's show. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. I wanted to take a quick second to tell you about Headstrong, my new book. Headstrong hit the New York Times bestselling science book list and the advice book list, which is a super cool thing to do. If you love this show and you like learning how to make your brain work better, how to make your body work better, Headstrong is a book like no other that tells you about the power system in your brain, in your body, and what you can do without spending any money in order to make it work better or things you can do like supplements or changes in diet or changes in exercise, and all sorts of environmental variables that improve your body's energy and metabolism. It's totally worth your time to read, so head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of Headstrong now. I'd be personally grateful if you picked one up, and you also took a second to leave a review. Uh, The book has changed tens of thousands of people's lives, and I'd be grateful if you read it. That's Headstrong on the Amazon website. Today's guest is a psychologist from the Harvard faculty. Her name is Deirdre Barrett, and she's the author of books including Committee of Sleep and Supernormal Stimuli, and an expert on lucid dreaming and how dreams contribute to creativity and problem solving. So welcome to the show, Dr. Deirdre. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Uh, Deirdre, the reason I wanted to interview you today is that you are the editor-in-chief of the journal dreaming. And you've been the president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams and things like that. And you even make something called dream art. And 
in the whole history of Bulletproof Radio, I haven't talked too much about dreaming. A, a couple of shamanic interviews here and there, but so many of uh, of the world's top inventors talk about having a dream where they solved a problem. And a lot of people listening to the show today are interested in problem solving or self-awareness. And I wanted to just have a real open conversation with you. How did you get into the idea of studying dreaming? Because it's kind of out there. Well, I, I, I think my situation is probably similar to most dream researchers in that I had very high dream recall as a child. And I think I had more vivid, wild, interesting dreams than average. And so if your own dreams are especially interesting and you remember them clearly, I think it's rather automatic to be just fascinated. I mean, everyone has some of that weird parallel world experience remembered, but I think I had more than average. So I think that most people get interested in psychology and go into psychology and then they pick a specialty. Uh, well into grad school. But I think I did sort of the opposite, that I was just always fascinated by dreams. And as I got to maybe junior high age or so, I got that if people were going to pay me to just think about dreams all the time, that I needed to major in psychology and go to graduate school in psychology. So I kind of picked the specialty before I picked the general field. Oh, that's interesting. So it was just a personal interest that drove you to pick uh, becoming a Harvard psychologist just because dreams are so cool, even as a kid. Yes. How do dreams change? I, I know kids almost live in a dream world. Like when I look at my kids' brain waves on the EEG equipment, and yes, I, I hack my kids' brains, <laughs> but uh, I, I you see a lot of theta state. And when our babies were almost constantly in, in this dream time, and as we become adults, our, our brains shift. At what age do kids sort of come out of the dream state and start being more aware of reality? And how often do we go into it? And, and like, when do we lose that, if ever? Well, I mean, there are two things going on there. One is the theta state you're talking about that that isn't right. actually when our full-blown dreams occur, but it's definitely a more imaginative imagery-related state. And that is that is gradually waning. But the other the more specific thing that's gradually waning is that kids not only sleep more hours, but a higher percentage of their time is in rapid eye movement sleep when we're actually dreaming. Late stage fetuses have the most REM time. God knows what they're dreaming about, but then babies have, you know, the most of any post-birth creatures and then toddlers a little less and older children a little less than that. So it's it's not a sudden, oh, they quit at this age. It's it's a very gradual decline that almost plateaus in the young adult years, but actually there's a slight loss of percentage of dream time even throughout the adult life cycle. But it's it's most it's mostly from babyhood to to the start of young adulthood. I'm going to ask you another very strange question here. Last year I came down with a brain-eating uh, amoeba, a uh, GI bug. And for for four months, I had like really bad GI problems before I figured out what was going on. I got this from something as dramatic as eating salad <laughs> in, in Arizona. That's sort of a random thing. But the first week when I had this, every night I would wake up with nightmares. I haven't had a nightmare in 15 years. Like, like I, I've done a lot of personal development work but these were always like like things threatening me, threatening my company, and, and just sort of like doom and gloom things that were so out of character for me uh, that I'm I'm absolutely certain that they were correlated with this really bad gut infection that I had. Have you seen research or have you come across this in patients where when people have something physically wrong with them, they start having nightmares? Yes. I don't know anything about your particular amoeba, but bacterial infections that raise your fever a fair amount uh, definitely make people report more nightmares. And, and probably they're actually having more nightmares because the body is registering things are wrong. But also the fever is simply disturbing sleep. And since you have to wake up to remember a scary dream, you you may simply be remembering more nightmares, but you're probably having more also. And then there, there are other mechanisms. Viruses trigger a lot of interferon in your body, which 
again, is just kind of telling your body something's wrong and, and you don't necessarily have a fever, but a lot of biochemical things are off. So yeah, a lot of infections can cause you to have more nightmares and any number of drugs that you take for those infections also can the, um, forgetting the name of the main, the, the best modern anti-malarial drug, but it has a lot of side effects, but, but including daytime extreme anxiety for some people, but it, it causes, causes dramatic nightmares. So sometimes it's the treatment of the infection, not just the infection. So the, the pharmaceuticals can do that. Yeah. I, I also routinely ask people, I, I'm a, an expert in toxic molds because I grew up in a basement that had <laughs> toxic molds. <laughs> and, uh, and I filmed a documentary called Moldy. And for people listening who haven't heard me talk about it, it's at moldymovie.com. And one of the things I'll ask someone who says, how do I know if I have mold in my house? I say, do you have bizarre, vivid nightmares? Because it's really common when either you first like get the mold in the house or if you sleep in a moldy hotel room where you just like, what just happened to me when I woke up? Is, is there some kind of a like a, an attempt for the body to communicate with you through dreams? Do you believe that? Or it was this just purely physiological chemical stuff? Yes. I mean, you're, you're, you're hitting the specifics that I know the least about mold and amoebas. <laughs> I, I haven't actually seen research on their causing nightmares like viruses okay. and bacteria and some chemicals, but, but the, the, the general process question that, that you asked me, I'm not sure that I would personify it like the body is trying to communicate with you, although perhaps, but I think one phenomena is just that things that aren't conscious by day often get through in our dreams because we don't have to pay attention to all our, our band of consciousness is pretty narrow compared to everything going on in our brain. So by day, we're, we're focused on, you know, everything we're looking at and seeing and processing visually and sounds and conversations we're having. And, you know, and your brain just has to be keeping you upright and balanced and everything. And at night, there's no visual, real stimuli coming in. Your perception of sounds is damped way down. You're not having to deal with any balance movement stuff. So a lot of the things that occupy us by day are just not there in those brain areas are, are quiet at night. So things like if something is subtly pressing on a nerve in a way that you don't even feel is pain or, or you do have a lot of air interferon running around your body, kind of making you feel vaguely sickish, just things that we wouldn't notice by day because they're being crowded out of our attention, I think often get through into our dream content just because they don't have to compete with all the sort of basic visual input. Okay, that, that makes sense. I definitely hear a lot of stories about people who, especially with kind of long-term illnesses, I do not put any kind of psychic attribution to some people that tell these stories as, oh, this means my dream was knowing I was going to get cancer or knowing I was going to get this neurological disorder. But it's very striking to me that it tends to be the disorders that are rather slow in forming in the body where the process is there long before you would usually clinically notice it, where somebody has a dramatic dream that occasionally tells them they have cancer in a way that they understand it. But more commonly, just in retrospect, as soon as they do get diagnosed with cancer, you know, is about some monster growing in exactly that part of the body where, where the cancer actually was. And, and I think that's a function of just that, you know, our body, our body is making antibodies even when they're not working against infections and cancer and nerves are getting pushed out of the way. And, and so I, I, I see a lot of dreams that seem to be sensing things that, that the person isn't realizing and a doctor wouldn't diagnose yet clinically and yet that are already going on in the body. So, so the, the vague sense of unease can come through. Yeah. I was with a, a person once where we had a, a toxic mold breakout. I'm not, not using mold here cause I know that's not your area of expertise, but <laughs> what, what she did is she woke up and 
accused me of random things that that simply did not happen, like coming into the bedroom and turning the lights on and off, and then picked up her car keys, uh, stormed out of the house, and got into the car to to drive somewhere, and then went to sleep in in the car. And, And she came back in a couple hours later, and I was completely bewildered. She had been asleep the whole time that she did that. And I, I didn't know it because her eyes were open and she was talking to me, but but she was this was like part of a nightmare sequence that she was having. And I've read other things about people you know going places and doing things when they're still asleep. Is this something that that you've come across in your research uh, or something you've seen in patients, or is this just one of those random things? Well, that sort of thing can happen very rarely in some people who, who have something just a little different neurologically and will have an overlap of a sleep state with with a waking state. It can happen spontaneously. And you're saying in this case, you think it might have had something to do with mold. But where that's really common is some of the benzodiazepine sleeping pills are very bad about producing hybrid states where somebody is not completely alert, they won't remember things, and yet they have their eyes open and they're able to speak as we are not usually able to during sleep. So sleeping pills produce that sort of of appear to be awake but aren't actually fully awake behavior pretty often, but, but it can happen spontaneously even without sleeping pills. Do you know if she had taken a sleeping pill? She had not taken a sleeping pill and uh, wasn't on any weird medications. And it, it happened on probably the hottest, most humid night of the year uh, when we were both experiencing all sorts of weird symptoms that we didn't yet understand what they were. So that was always our theory. And some of the, the mold experts have talked about this strange, like people keep having strange nightmares. But I, it wigged both of us out because to, to be moving around and walking and talking but asleep, I didn't quite realize that that was something that was possible until I I saw it. Yeah, well, I mean, I've heard similar stories a lot linked to sleeping pills and occasionally, you know, for other assorted or or no obvious reason. Well, let's let's switch gears into something where I know you've spent a lot of of your work, which is how do we put our dreams to work for us? And and I've been interested in lucid dreaming for 20 plus years, and I do interesting types of neurofeedback that oftentimes will cause me to have uh, more intense dreams. And I've looked at various techniques for creating lucid dreams and even the sort of out there stuff like astral travel, like you perceive yourself leaving your body and floating around and, and all those kinds of things. What's, what's your take on the usefulness of dreams? Like, like can we put them to work for us? Um, yes. I mean, I first of all, I think they're naturally already working for us to a certain extent with without us having to have any very specific intent about that. Um, in, in my work for my book, The Committee of Sleep, where I went around interviewing experts in all fields about whether they ever had had a dream that was useful, the, the majority of the examples I collected were completely spontaneous. I mean, they the narrative would often be, you know, I never paid much attention to my dreams until I was working on this chemistry problem that I just couldn't solve. And then one night I had this dream where dream solved it. So people who aren't particularly paying attention to their dreams can sometimes have breakthrough dreams. Um, I think it happens a lot more in cultures that explicitly teach that dreams may be useful for practical things because I think some of the problem solving dreams are so obvious that when you wake up, you know, it's just you remember being told exactly the literal answer to this problem. But some of them that are just a little bit more metaphoric and it takes a little reflecting on whether that could actually be the answer I think a lot of Westerners might brush the dream aside and they've had a problem-solving dream and they'll never know it. Whereas in a culture where you're taught that your dreams are going to show you a better way to build a hut or where where the prey animals might be hiding this month or something, you know, and you have a dream and you immediately kind of think about whether that's telling you something, it's a lot likelier to be useful. So I definitely have spent a lot of time developing dream incubation techniques that 
help people guide their dreams toward particular questions and problems. And those can really increase the rate at which our dreams give us really practical help. But I think simply paying attention to the dreams you're already having is is the, the first big step toward that. Well, the reason that I invited you on the show is that I think everyone listening to this would love to know some of those techniques. And I think a lot of them will probably want to read your books about this. But what are what are the steps that I could take or anyone could take to do that? Well, there's sort of three three different levels of steps. And one is just to increase your dream recall to, you know, to get more of the content that's already there that may be helpful. And first of all, just to have the dreams. Sleeping seven or eight hours a night is very important. Because we dream about every 90 minutes, but each dream period gets much longer than the preceding one. So if you sleep four hours instead of eight, you're not getting half your dream time. You're getting like 20% of your dream time. So short sleeping hurts us in a lot of ways, but, but it, it impacts dreaming sleep more than, than the other forms of sleep. So sleeping eight hours is just the single most important thing to, to increase your dream recall, but also paying attention, telling yourself as you're falling asleep that you want to remember your dreams in the morning, keeping either your phone with some recording app on it next to the bed or an old fashioned paper and pencil to write with. Um, and when you wake up in the morning to just take a moment to think about whether there's a dream there. So the recall for dreams is so fragile that if you hop up and pay attention to something else, a dream that sort of was in your memory will be really gone. I'm th- I think everyone's had the experience of kind of waking up and going, oh, wow, what an amazing dream. And then half an hour later, when they're trying to tell somebody, they can remember that thought of having an amazing dream, and they can't remember what the amazing dream was. So going over it in your mind, at least, and writing it down or recording it, preferably. So just it, just making an effort to remember more dreams, lots of people find just opens up a whole other world to them. The, the second step, though, is in thinking about more explicitly interpreting them. And the best forms of dream interpretation are, are not some expert telling you what they think your dream means, or certainly not those, those cookbook things that say, if you dream of a dog, this means, you know, X, <laughs> you will have bad fortune, you will have good fortune. Um, it, it, the, the best interpretation, even if someone else is doing it for you, is, is to help you figure out your own symbols and metaphors, asking somebody, what is a dog to you? Pretend I'm from another planet and tell me about dogs. And one person will say, well, there are big, fierce, scary animals with sharp teeth that can bite you. And the next person will say, they're, they're loyal, they're man's best friends, they're more reliable, you know, than your human friends. And the next person will say, oh, they're these, they're these cute little baby-like things that we need to protect. You know, and for those three people, the dog in the dream will represent, you know, those three di- very different things. So it, sometimes it's helpful to have an objective outsider querying you on these things, but you can do a certain amount of this for yourself, just playing through each of the main characters or animals or activities and kind of, you know, what does this represent to me? And then kind of stringing it together. Is there anything in your waking life right now where it feels like there's some helpless little thing that's being menaced by a big, scary thing and, you know, etc. And especially focusing on the emotions in the dream. Um, you know, is there anything in my waking life that gives me that gut feeling in the pit of my stomach that I had when the witch was chasing me down the hall in the nightmare? Often gets us in touch with things that, that are important in our waking life that we've kind of been shoving aside. So, so in, interpretation is important, but then the sort of third most advanced um, step is in trying to guide and influence your dreams, which of course isn't worth doing until you're remembering them decently. But then you can tell yourself as you're falling asleep, 
anything as simple as you want to dream about a particular person or topic or, you know, as specific as, you know, that very technical problem at work that I'm stuck on, I'd like to have a dream that showed me some other solution to this. And, and just kind of form your question or problem or topic as, as a simple phrase or sentence to repeat to yourself, you know, I want to dream about X as you're falling asleep. And then because dreams are so very visual, it's, it's helpful to come up with imagery that, that relates to it. I mean, if it's a person you're trying to dream about, obviously you picture them for more complicated problems. You, you may have to think a little bit more about what one or several visual images go with them. And if you're a pretty good imager, just doing that in your head as you're falling asleep is what you want to do. But if you're someone who doesn't really have very much visual imagery clearly when you're awake, you might want to put some real physical object by your on your night table, like just a photograph of the person you're trying to dream about or or some little grouping of objects that represents the problem or question. So you have something to physically stare at so that one way or the other, you're getting a visual image in because their dreams are so visual that, that they're cued even better by imagery than by, by words. So do those two things, kind of tell yourself what you want to dream about, stare at or eyes closed, visualize something connected to it. And in one of my studies where I had uh, college students trying to solve fairly simple problems that they would eventually solve but had not yet solved, like homework problems for some of them, they were doing this incubation for one week at bedtime. And 50% of them dreamed about the, the topic of their problem in a week of doing this. And about one-fourth solved the problem. And now that part would vary a lot depending on how difficult the problems were and I think would drop off um, some from, from this easy problem situation. But the about 50% of them easily in a week achieved the topic they were targeting. That, that seems to hold up across, across lots of kinds of content. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Are there supplements or herbs that make it more likely? Like I, I know... 5-HTP and L-theanine, I've heard people talk about those as, as things that can, inc- certainly those can manipulate sleep quality, but uh, I have a friend who says he takes 400 milligrams of theanine and has hours and hours of fully lucid dreaming every night. It doesn't work for me, <laughs> but have you come across like magic potions that give you better dreams? Those are two I haven't seen research on. REM. And in the case of 5-HTP, I don't think it's thought to be very relevant to REM. It, it definitely, it's definitely a precursor for serotonin, which should help you go to sleep easier and sleep more soundly. But that's just sort of generally falling asleep. And obviously, if your trouble recalling dreams is because you have general insomnia, it might, might be useful in that sense. There's at least one study on B6, which does serve as an enzyme precursor to some of the things that are necessary to rapid eye movement sleep. There are two of the Alzheimer's drugs have been studied and found to slightly increase the odds of having lucid dreams, which we'll talk about more in a minute, but dreams where you know you're dreaming while you're dreaming. They don't generally enhance dreaming and they actually make you wake up more often. Uh, Probably lucid dreams are a little closer to waking. So there's, there's definitely a lot of research on chemicals that, that either increase dreaming a bit more or, or alter it in some way. Uh, None of them seem to be just really dramatic, effects for all people, but they'll be statistically significant if you have a reasonably large group. And and it certainly makes sense because our neurotransmitters in our body are influencing just that the rapid eye movement sleep starts at all and different qualities of it. So the the substances that are precursors for for neurotransmitters are, you know, are very likely to have some effect. On the other hand, our body has all these homeostatic 
mechanisms kind of regulating that that we don't have way much more than it considers normal at any given time and sort of pushing back and damping down excesses of things. So I think that keeps the effects from being real dramatic. Do you remember the names of the Alzheimer's drugs? I'm guessing memantine might be one of them, but... Galantamine is the prescription one that's been studied. And the other one is that really common health food store thing that a lot of people take for... We'll find the name and put it in the show notes. Basically, both of them are affecting acetylcholine, one of the neurotransmitters that is involved in rapid eye movement sleep. And and they're both pushing the REM sleep a little closer to the arousal threshold, which both can wake you up and interfere with sleep. And personally, I tried the galantamine and it it mainly made me sleep less well. Me, me too. I've tried that as well. <laughs> but in, in, in the well control studies, again, uh, there are a lot of things that show some effect when you've got a large enough group and it's averaging over the group effect because, you know, for a few people it's working very well. So it seems to be anything that pushes acetylcholine up is, is somewhat likely to push lucid dreaming a bit, but also to wake you up a bit more. And for people listening uh, who aren't familiar with our neurotransmitters, acetylcholine is one of the stimulatory neurotransmitters. And there are lots of herbs that'll prevent your body from breaking it down and you can take it directly. And in fact, I've got a a couple supplements uh, coming out very shortly that have some of that in it, but too much acetylcholine causes like muscle cramping and tension. And, and so there, there's a, a big complex interplay here. And, and I think what you said is really important, Deirdre, that the stuff that works for one person may completely not work for another person, which is why these like complex stacks of all sorts of different things, um, you're probably going you're gonna to get results that are very different because something's going to be working against each other in the same stack. I think that they don't work dramatically. They they work no better than some of the more just sort of psychological practices that you can do to have have more lucid dreams. So I I definitely do not recommend doing prescription Alzheimer's drugs to see if you have more lucid dreams. Even though I just said I have done this as I say, not as I do. <laughs> well, the the audience of Bulletproof Radio is, is the kind of people who are probably willing to self-experiment a little bit, but there are, are long-term side effects from most of these things. But you know, if you did try it once and you looked at the at the drug insert and decided if it was, you know, worth worth the risk for you, I'm sure some people will try it. And there are lots of lots of reasons you might want to or not want to. And and I'm I'm grateful that we're in a in a society where people can be free to uh, to make that choice. Um, I. I may or may not have experienced a difference when I uh, was or wasn't experimenting with microdosing LSD, where you're taking about 5% of a normal dose of LSD as a cognitive enhancing substance. Have you come across any research on changes in dreams from people who are taking way below the I'm going to go have a trip doses of, of hallucinogenic drugs? I haven't seen any research per se on that. On on oh on the microdosing LSD specifically, I've not seen any. Okay. There's actually um, there are a lot of drugs where coming off them seems to produce dramatic dreams. You certainly don't want to become alcoholic and go into withdrawal just to have really really vivid dreams, but that increases. <laughs> uh, actually, getting drunk on a given night will it will reduce your REM sleep through the early part of the night and then you'll tend to have a little more REM uh, toward the end. But People who are withdrawing from, who are really habituated to alcohol and are, are somewhat in withdrawal, have huge amounts of REM sleep. So lots of the dreams are nightmares. I mean, it's some of the worst nightmares in the world happen then. But some really kind of dramatic, you know, it, it's just more vivid in, in all directions and vivid visual imagery. But to a lesser extent, um, the amphetamines, most of the stimulants, MDMA, as people are coming off those, there's a kind of a 
heightening of of REM in the sleeping off. Some, you you pretty much can't go to sleep, including dreaming sleep, while while you're on most of those substances. And there there does seem to be a high rate of report of vivid dreams after after any of those stimulant drugs, including MDMA, which doesn't really feel like a stimulant, but people can't sleep on it and it's closely related to amphetamine. It doesn't feel as speedy as amphetamine or coke or, or most of the quote stimulants. What about uh, ketamine? I, I've been uh, working with a physician, an anesthesiologist, who uses ketamine to help people deal with PTSD and also during certain types of IV infusions that are, are really uncomfortable. Uh, is that something that affects dreams? I think most of these drugs haven't been studied for their effects on dreams specifically. And the ones that affect dreams the most are not generally the dreamiest. They are things like the stimulants that, that okay. then... You know, they're essentially suppressing REM sleep while you're on them. And then you have this kind of REM rebound after them. And some of the, some of the drugs like LSD and ayahuasca, and I'm not sure I'd put ketamine in this category, but the ones that induce kind of dreamy states while you're awake and have some of the transmitters that would be involved in REM sleep higher then you wouldn't necessarily you might you know you might even get a rebound in the other direction of kind of less dreamlike activity once you finally go to sleep from those i mean th- those are two separate issues whether they actually affect your nighttime dreams in some way versus whether they make your waking daytime experience you know somewhat more like you usually only experience in your dreams and i think it's different different classes of, of drugs that, that would do one versus the other. Okay. No one coming down from ayahuasca really worries about whether their dreams are dreamlike if they've been through 12 hours of hallucinating awake. Uh, yeah, you're probably just glad you can go to sleep because <laughs> mm-hmm. you're a little worn out after that. At least that was my experience. Uh, now, one of the, the most incredible books on dreaming that I, I've read was a book on Tibetan sleep yoga. And this is an obscure book. I read it maybe 10 years ago, and I'll, I'll get the exact title, but it's probably called Tibetan Sleep Yoga, if I remember right. This was a guy who's you know a, a llama somewhere. And he starts out the book saying, look, I'm a really busy guy. I, I'm all day long, I'm teaching, and I'm you know being a monk and, and all these things. So I found I didn't have time for meditation. So now when I go to sleep, I do all my meditation while I'm asleep because I'm actively dreaming the entire time I'm asleep. So I do all of my personal, uh, you know, enlightenment process work <laughs> while I'm just do, like essentially sitting in lotus pose while I'm asleep. He's sleeping, laying down, but in his in his dreams, he's full on meditating consciously. Is this just like a, a half human sort of person, <laughs> or uh, is this a state that maybe? people listening to the show could could achieve we're like wow i actually can can consciously either work on my personal development process or like put all of those eight hours of of nightly downtime can i put those back into production is this, is this possible do you know anyone who does this yeah probably if you devote your entire life to studying tibetan buddhist practices you could um, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's easy for most people to learn to do the things that, that they are talking about. And the, the Tibetan Buddhists have all kinds of dream practices and different branches of them seem quite different. They're way more interested in dreams than Zen Buddhists or other branches of Buddhism, but they're actually, there are two books out there by Tibetan Buddhist monks that have pretty much the title Tibetan dream yoga, but, but. They, they differ by one word, and I'm not keeping them straight right now. One is by a Tibetan who's settled in Virginia and has his main center out of Virginia. And his book is all about how you're supposed to, as you fall asleep, meditate on different, like the heart chakra with a red lotus there, while breathing through your left nostril and lying on your right side to induce a certain kind of dream, all this sort of position, nostril, 
chakra and color will will produce certain kinds of dream content and it's this like very precise obsessive system of having the dream you're supposed to have next and then the other one is probably the one that you're talking about or maybe there's a third where there's a lot more emphasis on developing lucid dreaming it's actually advocating lucid sleep in general that you should learn to just to be aware as you're falling asleep and watching yourself sleep. But it also, that that's the one that talks a fair bit about how you can learn to do your meditations in your sleep. Yeah, that's the one I read. Yeah, but my understanding is, you know, they are talking about things, you know, achieved after 10 years of kind of full-time practice of, of these things for the most part. Unless, unless one is going to devote one's life to Tibetan Buddhist practices, I don't think they're the particularly quick ways to go about giving some kind of dream control. But, but I mean, I totally believe that they happen and that those people are talking about very authentic, very interesting experiences. Those 10-year type practices kind of piss me off because a lot of us have careers and families and uh, things we want to do in the world. And <laughs> so I, I actually started a neuroscience uh, thing up in, in Seattle uh, called 40 Years of Zen. And the the point of 40 Years of Zen is to be able to teach you to put your brain when you're awake into the same state as someone who's done 40 years of daily Zen practice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a big part of my personal development thing where I'm like, wow, I can really push things. But you're really inspiring me to to think about whether I can measure the brains of some of these people and find out what they're really doing when they're asleep and then make it teachable in less than 10 years. So you you totally gave me a, a something to work on there. Thank you for that. Because some of these states, like, like they tell you to meditate on the heart and look at these lotuses because they don't have ways to say, this is what's happening in the brain. So they're trying to pick up like the the feeling in the body and then use language for something that's that's the world of feelings, not the world of language. So it's very hard very hard to translate that. Even any discussion around dreams, you and I are running into that same problem. We're, we're trying to describe something that only you see, even though someone next to you might be seeing something different, but in a similar state. And I think that's why a lot of research is really behind on sleep. Mm-hmm. Maybe not on sleep, but on dreams specifically. And that's why I want to talk to you because you're like, oh, let's look at that because it's interesting, which, which is, you know, thank you for doing that work because it's, it's also hard. Yeah, well, actually, let me tell you a little bit about the the techniques that I think so yes. far work best sort of in a quicker way for Westerners, which are, um, the, these tend to be pioneered by Steve LaVerge or to be alterations of, of things that, that he's had out there for 20 or 30 years. But, um, and, and basically the most effective low-tech approaches, if one's, you know, not going to spend one's life meditating seem to be a combination of what we call daytime reality checks where you part of it is just asking yourself if you might be dreaming right now and taking that question seriously and thinking about it um free form is good but then to have some very specific reality check where you have determined things that seem to work differently in your dreams versus awake and you check a couple of those things and none are completely universal for all people but some of the things that are likely to be different in in dreams for most people are most people can't read well in their dreams uh, some people can't read at all. Any letters will look like hieroglyphics. Other people can read a short sentence, but they'll lose the flow after that. Other people can read something, but if they look away and look back, it says something different in the dream. So if you get, if you think about how in a written language behaves in your dreams, then you know whether you just have to find something to read or whether you need to read something, look away and look back at it. But for a lot of people that works well as one of the checks. Um, Also clocks and watches do not work properly for most people in dreams. They will not change time every minute or they will change much more than a minute or they will not 
change in sequential numbers or they'll be displaying numbers that don't correspond to possible times or they'll be blurry and vague and you can't read and understand the numbers. So thinking about what timepieces do, most people, if they flick a light switch in a dream, it won't immediately dim or greatly brighten the light. It may have no effect or it may dim it just barely or there may be a lag time before the dimming or brightening. So that so so there there are a number of things that work differently for most people, but you have to identify a couple for yourself. These work this way in my dream and they work this other way when I'm awake. And then take seriously doing that. Ask yourself if you're dreaming, just free form, notice if there's anything that doesn't seem plausible to waking. And then whichever couple you've picked out, go over and flip a light switch and then pick up something with written material on it. And it's it's hard to get yourself to take the question seriously. You know, we all feel like, well, of course I'm awake. I know I'm awake. But, but to really, really ask yourself that question and test it. First of all, it, it usually has some kind of interesting effects just then and there in your waking state to really take that question of how do I know I'm awake seriously. A lot of people report that, that that's just, you know, a very, induces a very interesting state of consciousness, even as you're practicing it. But the main point is that any new practice that we do by day is likely to carry over into our dreams. So if you check whether you might be dreaming regularly several times a day awake, you will very likely have a dream in which you're remembering to do your am I dreaming practice and you will do it in the dream and the light switch won't work or the, you know, the writing will. So, so that's, that's one of the, the two main techniques. And the other thing that is also very helpful and they also combine well is much closer to the dream incubation I already described to you where you're trying to influence the content of your dream that night in any way, but very similarly to how you might say, you know, I want to dream about X problem or I want to dream about X person. You're just telling yourself, I want, I want to be lucid in my dream tonight. Tonight in my dream, I want to know I'm dreaming. And you tell yourself that as you're falling asleep. And again, some kind of imagery to go with that. If you've ever had a lucid dream already, you might kind of replay the moment in that dream where you realized it was a dream um, in your mind. Because again, a kind of a narrative or visual imagery will will get through to your dreaming mind even better than the verbal part. So if you do the, if you practice those two things regularly, it is very likely to increase your rate of lucid dreams. A couple times I've been tempted to order these little devices uh, that, that I've seen. Uh, this is going back uh, at least more than 10 years. It, it's like a little thing you wear on your belt. It looks like a, a pager for people who are old enough to remember what pagers look like. And it just has like a green button on it. <laughs> and the idea is you wear this thing during the day and you check it to say, you know, is, is the light green? And you sort of tell yourself it won't be green if I'm in a dreaming state so that you start questioning exactly like you just described you know, and am i dreaming now am i dreaming now so that when you have a lucid dream you, you sort of know it is there have you ever tested a device like that have you heard of people who've, who've done that steve laburge um did one of the first uh versions of sleep goggles there there are all kinds of less expensive um imitators working off the same things but right. his had one little um, electro lead to detect rapid eye movement sleep simply by by the eye movements themselves, which is much. It, it's it anyone that claims they're doing EEG leads off a simple cheap device, it's not really measuring brain waves. But but right on the surface, you can pick up the the muscles controlling the eyes. So he had one lead to detect eye movement, and then a very soft red light would flash. And you had to, by day, keep telling yourself, if I see a red light flashing, it will mean I'm dreaming. You kind of did this, this reminding yourself and especially reminding yourself as you fall, fell asleep. But then you wore this 
device that was um, detecting rapid eye movement sleep and blinking a red light at you. And, and he did some well-controlled research, and it definitely increased the, the rate of lucid dreams. It tends to wake a lot of people up every REM period if, if the light is not just at the exact right threshold for, for them. And again, I wore this device some, and it was, it was making me recall every REM period of the night because it was waking me up a little bit. But um, I slept with it a few nights, and then one morning I woke up and I'd thrown the thing across the room in my sleep, <laughs> um, I guess, because because my sleeping mind didn't like red lights flashed at me. So, so again, that's the range you see. I would have been one of the not success stories in the, in the group, but definitely there were people having more lucid dreams than if nobody was sleeping with, with that device. And then he also, though, we can, we can trick ourselves about any of these things, including the reading and light switch thing that I just told you about, because with, with his goggles, he did have some people report dreams where there was a red light flashing in their dream, and they would wonder why that was, and then they would kind of say, oh, there must be a cop car going by, or that's a fire engine going by outside, you know, making the blinking red lights, and they'd proceed with the dream without, without being lucid. Um, I think Steve LaBerge's funniest story about a missed cue was something he never developed for the general public, but he was trying on himself, which was he had a sleeping with a, a REM detector electrode. And, and when he was in REM, it would activate a tape recorder that he had attached to it that would play a recording of his own voice going, you're sleep, you're dreaming, Stephen, you're dreaming. And again, just like with the red light, the threshold was was attempting to be set just high enough that it would be perceived in the dream and not so high that it would, would wake you up. And, and he actually found some success with that. But his funniest dream was that he was in his sleep lab walking around the hall and he began to hear, Steve, you're dreaming. <laughs> And in the dream, he thought, oh, my God, someone's gotten a hold of my sleep tape. And as a joke, they're playing it over the loudspeaker system in the building. <laughs> so, so he was definitely mixing his realities there. And that can be Yeah, I mean, our, our, our sleeping mind will rationalize, will, when, when coming up with why this could be happening, sometimes it makes up you know, some other explanation it considers plausible, but this works because a fair bit of the time it goes, oh, the light switch is not working. That's because I'm dreaming rather than light switch is not working. That means I need to call an electrician. So, so it, it, it triggers lucidity enough of the time that it certainly increases the rate of, of lucid dreams. That is, that is so cool. And, and this is something that I think is maybe missing from a lot of the discussions in biohacking where these altered states that come when, when we're asleep can have real value for us. And I, I'm grateful that you've spent so much time writing about these uh, in your two books and just putting some science behind something that is, it's hard to measure because it's all subjective. And I, I have one more question for you. Yes. And this goes beyond just your, your field of study, but certainly can include it. And it, it's if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, Deirdre, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, uh, what would your three most important pieces of advice be for them? Um, you know, I think that would actually depend on the individual because somebody who has already pretty rich dream recall, and especially if they're already having a lot of lucid dreams, I would probably encourage them, you know, to much more strongly focus on exactly some of the techniques we've just been talking about. But on the other hand, one of the areas I used to do a lot more work in is hypnosis. And hypnosis has very modest effects on some low hypnotizable people. But if you happen to be a high hypnotizable person, the, the things that, that you can do with hypnosis or self-hypnosis are just hugely dramatic. So I really think sort of 
you know, what, what are already some of your personal strong points for, you know, kind of having peak experiences and having learning and creativity already seeming to happen spontaneously are probably the ones that you should pay more and more attention to and try to more consciously guide. I mean, I, I certainly do the most work on, on dreams lately. So that's the one I'm the most enthusiastic about, but, but I think there's some individual differences. And, and again, you can probably hear in my voice that I do not take the idea that somebody would, you know, decide to spend their whole life being a Buddhist monk as an idea that has, you know, ever been taken seriously by me. But, uh, you know, obviously, that's a path that gets people to just amazing, you know, conscious control of of mental and emotional abilities, you know, if someone chooses that. Um, so the, I think that was one good piece of advice, which was kind of focus on focus on your strengths for this stuff. Any other pieces of just general advice for someone who wants to, to be a better human? Well, definitely. I think at all levels that paying some attention to to your dreams is okay. is helpful. And it's one that Westerners often haven't you know, taken very seriously in, in tribal cultures. The idea that, you know, your your dreams are just another type of thought that your brain is doing and you know and that we may get really interesting ideas in our dreams is is a part of many cultures and i think sort of oh it's just a dream or if we if western culture focuses on it at all it's more that you might get some emotional understanding or something about relationships with which you can but the idea that your dreams may solve some problem at work or tell you when a medical problems developing in your body or just very, very practical things. I think just to, just to be aware of that and take that seriously. And when you remember a dream to kind of give it a moment to think about, about whether it's telling you something like that is, is, is good advice for low dream recallers or high dream recallers. Awesome. Okay. So I, I think we, we had two things. We had um, one around kind of focus on your strengths and focus on the value of dreaming and then a uh, any third piece of advice for for people, just things that have worked for you on your path. Definitely the the idea that that even though spontaneous dreams can can help you, that trying to incubate you know specific questions, writing down a particular problem as a brief phrase to think about as you're falling asleep, visualizing or having some concrete representation of it, keeping a pad and a pen by the bed. And when you wake up, not turning your attention to something else, but letting your letting yourself think about whatever bit of a dream memory you may have and what it may say about that problem. I think that greatly increases the, the rate of useful suggestions from dreams, even though I think they're they are spontaneously already working on our waking thoughts and concerns anyway. Well, well thank you so much uh, for being on Bulletproof Radio, and thanks for your extensive work on dreaming and lucid dreaming. Uh, where can people find out more about your work and your books? I have a website which is deirdrebarrett.com. You just need to spell it right. D e i r d r e is my first name. The no break Barrett b a r r e t t dot com, and and on the main page, one category is books, one category is my academic research, and one category is my dream art. So click on any of those, or if you just want to see the art slash art or the books, DeirdreBarrett.com slash books. Deirdre, you do some really interesting work around dream art. Can you tell me about that? Yes. I, I've been studying other artists' art my, my whole career, but recently I found that even though I can't draw well, that by taking photographs and doing some heavy digital manipulation that I could really bring my dreams to life. So I've been making this digital dream art. One series is a dream I had of wandering around Harvard Square, discovering weird little animals lived on the rooftop. So I've got every building in Harvard Square with the weird little animals. And it's just really fun to drag visual images from the dreams into the waking world. 
Well, we will definitely put some of those up on uh, the YouTube channel and we'll put those up on my Facebook page with little snippets from the interview. It, that'll be a lot of fun. And some of the, the really cool art in existence comes straight out of people's dreams. I think it's really cool that even though you're a you know, Harvard psychologist, that you're also going there from an art perspective. And I appreciate that. And I, I think a lot of people who hear this episode will be really intrigued to see uh, some of your art. Excellent. Well, thank you for being on the show. And I look forward to having really, really good dreams as a result. Okay, it was fun to do this. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.